Welcome, whoa, <laughs> hit me, hit you in the face. Hey, good morning, everybody doing all right? All right? Man, I love it. Man, I'm gonna be honest. It's been, there's been like a progression. That 845 service, they were like, hey. And then like 10 was like, yeah, and you guys, man, I, I can feel it. It's awesome. Um, so, so good to see you. I don't know about you, but man, I needed some church today, right? Um, I know, I don't know what your week has been like. Uh, just a crazy, crazy week. And it is always good to be with my people and to worship. Man, give it up for our team that just worshiped, um, led us this morning. Incredible, incredible. Um, you can ask my wife. Uh, I, I kind of help coach our boys' basketball teams. And let me tell you, it is hard to be a pastor and a coach because I want to lose my salvation um, as a coach and probably my witness in some regards. Uh, but I just, needed, I just needed some Jesus this morning, and I'm so thankful for our band and doing that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, chapter 2 of Acts, Acts 2. Um, we started the series last week. And we're going to be spending some, a good amount of time really walking through and journeying through the establishment of the early church, um, what God is doing and how he's going to use his people to expand and do incredible things um, in the lives of the early believers to really see this movement happen. And Christianity spread like never before, at the, obviously like never before because at the very beginning. And it's really interesting because you can read a lot of different books and look at some different resources. Historians are really puzzled by how Christianity spread so fast and so far in such a short amount of time. And it really is interesting because if you think about it, um, when Jesus left, what he left behind was relatively a small group of people. And they weren't the most influential, powerful, well-known people. It was a bunch of carpenters and fishermen and some outcasts that followed Jesus. And God used them in such a, a, an incredible way um, to spread the message of Christ. So it's really awesome to see how a small group of people did that. On top of that, we know that Christianity did not spread, at least for the first 400 years, because of conquest meaning that no one drew a sword and said, hey, you're going to become a Christian or else you die, um, you know, as other religions have, have done. Quite um, contrary to that, what we see is the early church actually welcomes anybody and everybody in. They, they taught, practiced, and were passionate about, hey, the gospel and God is for all people, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, uh, master and servant, a man and woman. So they invited them in, and it was just odd uh, that people were like, what in the world? And then as an outcome, being a follower of Jesus didn't make you rich. It didn't make you really well-liked. It actually was the opposite because most of them, um, they weren't liked, and it cost them something. It cost them maybe their home, their family, and for some, their lives. But yet, yet God used these disciples in this moment to do amazing, amazing things. And we're gonna see that all throughout this series. And where we kind of left off last week, whether you were here or not, was Luke, who's the writer of the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He shows and paints this picture of, okay, Jesus has died. He's been crucified, buried, resurrected. He, he's back. He visits the disciples. He visits approximately 500 plus people. 
And he tells the disciples, he gives them this mission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what we saw last week is that Jesus said, but I want you to wait right here. Don't go anywhere yet. I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the power that my Father has promised, which would be the Holy Spirit. And so in um, Acts chapter 2, what we see is what we call the day of Pentecost. And there's a lot of different theological things that we, we can maybe get into at a later date. But what happens is the disciples are waiting. They actually go to the upper room. They're locked in the upper room because they are afraid of their life. I mean, they killed Jesus they're next, right? So they're waiting, discussing, who knows what they're doing, um, but they're, they're afraid. And what we see in Acts is this rushing wind, this mighty tornado-like wind enters and fills the room. And we know it's the Holy Spirit. They become filled with the Holy Spirit. They're shocked. They're amazed. Um, we see this really strange scene of they look at each other and they have flames above their head. That's crazy, all right? And they're like, what in the world? But here's what's so interesting about it. In that moment, as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of God resided in them. In that moment, they went from being cowards to having boldness. They went from being confused about the gospel to now having clarity about the gospel. They went from not really knowing what to say to now gonna, they're going to speak it. And so in my mind, I don't know why this is. This is like, just like some insight of how my brain works. Have any of y'all ever been to a gym and you see um, guys who like are doing like, they're working out their arms. And you know, most gyms have like mirrors. I always laugh because they're like doing their bicep curls and they get done and they look by and they're like, have you ever seen that? It's like a gym that way or that way, you know? And I always think that's so funny. I'm like, you look ridiculous, bro, you know? Like, do that at home, you know, take your little protein shake and go on with your bad self, you know. But I, I could imagine, like, if I'm the disciples and you have this empowerment, you're, they walk out of that upper room like, yo, what's up, you know? Like, I got a pre-workout in me, you know, type thing. And so they leave the upper room. They go into the courtyard of the really crowded marketplace outside the temple, and they see tons of people that are there, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, people from outside the walls of Jerusalem that are gathered together and they're all speaking their native tongue. But here's the miracle of it. They actually know what each other is saying and they're all proclaiming the work of God. They're proclaiming the glory of God in this moment. And so Peter stands up and he uses it as an opportunity to point the people to say, hey, let me tell you what God is doing right here. This multi-language miracle is a fulfillment of God's promise of the Holy Spirit. And so he uses that and he uses it to say, this is a sign that God wants the message of Jesus to go out to the ends of the earth to all people, to all languages. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said, this is to be spread to the ends of the earth. And so I've kind of gone out of order before we even read scripture. It is so important for us to understand. Here's the first point this morning is that they were empowered by the spirit. They were empowered by the spirit. As we left off last week, we saw that the Spirit, right, 
empowers his people. We talked, that was, a, that was a, uh, I think the second point last week's message. And so this is so true. This is foundational. This is the start of the early church. Nothing in Acts or what God does to spread his name or the gospel message to be proclaimed would have happened without the Holy Spirit's work. It would just be a bunch of you know, knuckleheads that saw some good things. Jesus is still in a grave. They don't have any power. They're still cowards, and they don't know what to do with themselves. But the, the Spirit comes and empowers the disciples. Remember back in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, right here, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so they got this boldness, they got this clarity, all because of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm gonna be selfish for a minute and just tell you, I want to experience the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit as they did. I want us as a campus, as a church, as an individual believer, for us to encounter the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that emboldens us and clarifies us and gives us, gives us the strength where it's not about, well, I'm a little scared, I don't know what to say, but there is just the power of God radiating from our lives in such a way that amazing things are happening in us and through us. And so I'm not saying this is the magic of it, but I want, I want you to write down three things and I want you to commit to these three things to pray for them really over the course of this next year. And here's the three things. They'll be on the screen. The first one is I want you to pray for spiritual power. And here's what I mean by that because I know that can kind of sound cliche in some regards. I want you to pray to be fully dependent on God. God got us right where we are. Man, God is working in Upstate Church Five Forks and in, across our church in a, in a huge way. And we never need to get to the place to say, well, that's because of us. It's all because of God. It's because of his power, his guidance. I tell people all the time, they're like, hey, how's the Five Forks campus going? Man, it's going great. Man, God is faithful, and I'm just trying not to mess it up and stay out of the way. You with me? I want God to be God. I don't want it to be driven by me or you. I want to be driven by the Holy Spirit and I want to be dependent on that. So for us to pray for that kind of power of what God is doing to continually see God work in us and through us supernaturally that can only be explained by him. So that's what I mean for spiritual power. Two, I want us to pray for life change. And when I say life change, I don't mean bad people getting a little bit better. I mean life change. What Paul talks about, the old is gone, the new has come. What Jesus does, he transforms. And so for us to see people who are far from Jesus get rescued into the gospel and to come close to Jesus, people who are lost to be found. You following me? For salvation to occur in the lives of our neighbors and our friends and people who just kind of consider Jesus culturally relevant in some regards to their lives because it's the good thing you're supposed to do in the South, but for life change to happen. That also goes not only with salvation, but also baptism. For some of us that we believe in Jesus, but maybe we're afraid to take that next step in baptism, to, to take that step for us to be close to Jesus. So for life change to happen. And third is faithfulness. For you and I to be faithful. I challenge you to do that. 
And here's where that kind of plays out. I have on the screen, believe, serve, give, go. You probably have heard these words. We introduced them a couple years ago. But for us to be fully on board, to give Jesus our best, and to say, you know what? Man, I believe wholeheartedly in the mission of Jesus and the mission of this church. I want to connect people with Jesus so that he can change their world. And in order to do that, man, I, I want to be faithful in my attendance to this body. I want to be faithful in my giving. I want to be faithful in serving, not just being a consumer and sitting on the sidelines, but I want to go. The early church, that's what they did. There was no one in the early church that says, hey, y'all go do that. I'm going to be over here. You know? No one said, that sounds great, man. I want God to change lives. But we got a baseball tournament, okay? <laughs> you know, it was, man, it was fully committed. They were faithful in believing, serving, giving, and going. And on that note, let me, I haven't said this from the stage. I want to be really clear about it because I want you to hear our heart in this. When we say go, obviously last week we said the church is sent and we're all missionaries wholeheartedly. When you leave this place, man, you're a missionary to a broken and lost world. But let me highlight something else is that in the fall, Lord willing, we will start our sixth campus, the Haywood campus. And I, I just want you to hear me say this. Man, if God is leading you to be a part of that, and you feel like, man, God is leading me, then I want you to go. We're not about just, hey, my feelings are hurt. If you go, my feelings will not be hurt one bit. Dallas is doing an incredible job, I think, he has roughly around 100 people that are in the core group to start that. He has an interest. There's going to be an interest meeting this afternoon. There's going to be another one later this month. Um, at, actually, at the Haywood campus, the one today is downtown in our North Auditorium. Man, if, pray about that. I'm told, my feelings will not be hurt. If that's, hey, I'm going to go. I live in that way. I got, that makes sense to me, all right? It's a part of being obedient to the Lord. And here's why I say all that. Because as the early church was empowered by the Spirit, this was their life. They walked by the, and were led by the Spirit. They prayed for spiritual power. We can't do this. We're dependent on you, God. They prayed for life change. And they prayed, we want to go, we want to give, we want to serve, and we just want to be in, in the presence of God. So we'll do whatever it takes. And because of that attitude and that commitment and that conviction and passion, man, God did amazing things. And it's out of that that what we're going to see this morning is Peter stands up and preaches his guts out. <laughs> and he preaches it to this crowd that is from all over. And he preaches this amazing sermon, really the first message ever preached, if you will. And so let's look at that. We see, we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It'll be on the screens. You can follow along in this. And so Peter preaches. He's standing there with the disciples. He lifts up his voice to everybody who dwells, and he starts to begin. And we're kind of coming in in the middle of this. Verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you um, yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He conquered death. 
So here Peter says, you've witnessed it, you've seen it, and this Jesus who came, claimed to be God, was God. And you know he was because he came back to life. And he, he did exactly what he promised he would do. And he conquered death. And so he kind of goes in and continues kind of that thing of, hey, God raised him. He wasn't going to stay there. And we all witnessed it. So jump down to verse 36. Peter continues. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Two different titles and really two different meetings. We'll talk about that in a second. This Jesus, once again, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I can imagine it probably felt like a knife in the center of their chest. They were cut to the heart. So here's the second thing that we see out of this. Now, the disciples were empowered by the Spirit, but now this crowd is convicted by the Spirit. Jesus promised this, uh, John writes in John 16, 8, that when he comes, this is Jesus saying, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, that he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, I feel like we've talked about this for like six weeks now. You're probably tired of hearing it. But when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, he convicts us of our sin. He shows us things that aren't in alignment with the truth and the plan of God. And he exposes that and says, hey, you need to correct this. This is not honoring to God. Do something about it. The word convict, actually, if you look at the original translation in the Greek, really means to cross-examine yourself. It means to press yourself with the evidence and to expose the inconsistencies that aren't aligned with who God is. So they were convicted by the Spirit. The Spirit showed up and was working through Peter and through these disciples. The message was preached. The gospel was presented. And the Spirit said, oh, watch this. And convicted them in such a way that Scripture says it cut them to the heart. Now here's two different ways that it really cut them to the heart. This isn't going to be on the screens. It's just a kind of side note um, in this. One they were cut to the heart because they realized they had been wrong about Jesus. Now think about this. At the, at the time, there are a lot of different theories about who Jesus was. Some thought he was a prophet. And so they thought as a prophet, he's just going to take them back and wants to bring them back to religious to the, uh, to the religion of their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, to bring them back to tradition and all those things as the prophet. So he came and he taught these things to kind of bring them back in time. Some thought that he was a political Messiah. They thought, you know what? We as Jews, we are under such Roman oppression that Jesus is gonna come. He, the Messiah is gonna come, the Savior. He's gonna save us from the hand of our enemies, the Romans. And he's going to come, he's going to make war, he's going to kick tail, he's going to send them back to Rome, and we will be free. Some people th thought and wrote Jesus off as a fraud, a fake. They thought he was some kind of charlatan or a magician that coerced them, manipulated them, and said, hey, you know what, just follow me. And they drank the Kool-Aid, and now they're a cult, <laughs> you know? And people didn't know. They didn't know what to, what to think, so they thought, that he was all of these different things. 
But the beauty of it was is that Jesus didn't conform to the expectations of the people. He continued to preach, I am God's son. I am the Messiah. He continued to heal people. He continued to forgive sins of people and do amazing things. And he, he said, it's okay for you to worship me. It was blasphemy in the Jewish culture. Can you imagine? People are like, hey, Jesus, listen, I love what you're doing, bro. Everything is great. Thanks for healing my friend. Man, your, your messages, they're really awesome. They're really inspiring, you know? But this whole, like, you calling yourself God's son and that you're the Lord and you're the Messiah, you get, need to kind of be quiet because that, that's not, people don't like that. And Jesus kept proclaiming it, and he was crucified for it. It was blasphemy in their rules. So they sent him to the cross, and in this moment, they realize what Peter is saying and what they have witnessed. Now, mind you, think about this. This is roughly at least less than two months, time frame from Jesus being crucified. And over 500 people have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus because he's visited with them personally. So it's hard for them to say, you know what, this isn't really happening. He isn't really God's son. I don't know what to make of this. It's all a lie. Y'all are hallucinating, doing, you know, whatever, making up all kinds of rumors. Man, Jesus proved it by his resurrection. And if you think about it, what they were thinking then is not that different than what people in our world think about Jesus now. A lot of people think Jesus was just a good teacher. Some people would relegate Jesus to just to be the backbone of Western morality, especially in the Bible Belt of the South. Well, God says, and that's what our standards should be. And we know we live in a world that says, well, Jesus is just one of many ways that you can get to God and get and experience eternal life. But Jesus says, no, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he proves that through his resurrection. And in this moment, as Peter is preaching, and he says, you witnessed it. You saw it firsthand. They realize they are cut to the heart. Say, you know what? We were wrong about him. He wasn't just some prophet or some good teacher. He was the Savior. So they were cut to the heart through that. We also see that they were cut to the heart because they realized they were responsible for the death of Jesus. Think about this twice. Peter calls it out. He says in verse 23, you crucified and killed him. In verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in verse 36, he also talks about, as I mentioned, that he was made, God made him both Lord and Christ. So Christ being Messiah or Savior, he, he didn't save you from your sins, that he should be in control of your life as Lord. So he points to those things and says, God made him that, but yet you killed him. You said, no thanks. And think about this. Peter is preaching this in a huge way. Two things, real quick. One, because oftentimes this verse is used in an anti-Semitic way to say, well, it's all the Jews' fault. When, he, when, when Peter says you, he's just talking about the Jews. You gotta remember, in this courtyard, in this moment, there are people from all over the place. And so when Peter says you, he's speaking globally. Anybody and everybody, who cares where you're from? 
Everybody has sinned and everybody has killed Jesus. But then Peter's also speaking personally. Think about this. Peter denied Jesus three times. That same Peter that walked on water, that had the faith to walk to Jesus. I don't care if he sank or not. I don't, I don't think I would be like, okay, I'm coming to you, Jesus. Let me get out in the middle of this storm and walk to you on water. The same Jesus that as he was starting his ministry, he's like, hey, I know a lot of people are saying I'm, I'm different things. Who do people say that I am? They're like, Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. Some say this and that. And he said, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter looked at him in the face and said, you're Jesus Christ. You're the son of the living God. He knew Jesus, but yet he denied him three times. And Luke writes that on that third time of denial, Jesus, after being beaten and probably blood coming down from his head, crown of thorns, looks in Peter's eyes. And you know what Luke says? That that look cut Peter to the heart. The same emotion as Peter's preaching this to the people. And he recognized, it says he went and he wept. He realized what Jesus did on the cross. Peter said, I did that. I'll put him there. And so in this moment, the crowd is cut to the heart because they realize I killed Jesus. I put him on the cross. It was my sin that did that. And you know what the great irony of the cross is? Is that God used the most heinous crime against him as a means of our salvation. God used the most horrible, heinous crime of sin that put him on the cross, that you and I killed him. He used that crime that was against him as the means for you and I to have salvation. Man, that is incredible. But here's what it means for us. Is that when it becomes personal, we take ownership. It's easy to be like, well, Jesus died on the cross for all those really, really bad people, sinners. But for us, we have to get to the point that Peter said and those people said, you know what? That's my sin. I put them there. It's not the really, really bad people. I put him there. And because my sin put him there, I need forgiveness. It's not, they all need forgiveness. They're really, really bad. It's personal. We have to take ownership. And the Spirit convicted them in such a way that it wasn't some fluffy, distant God who, who put Jesus there because of really, really bad people in a far distant land somewhere. It was them and it was us that he died on the cross for every single one of our sins. So it has to be personal. Here's the third point this morning in closing. That what we see is not only were the disciples empowered by the Spirit, not only were they convicted by the Spirit, but they were called by the Spirit. Look at what happens. Uh, we'll, I'll read verse 37 and we'll go to 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They heard it said, okay, what now? How should we respond? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And when with many words, he bore witness. So Peter continued to talk about things and he continued to exhort them. He continued to preach. And he said this, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine? Now that's some church right there. 3,000 people responded to the message that Peter just preached. They were convicted. They took ownership of their sin. And it wasn't about becoming a better person. It wasn't about becoming a little bit more religious or having great church attendance. The church hadn't started. It was about recognizing my sin put Jesus there and recognizing he is Lord. He is Christ. He needs to be in charge. And so they surrendered and took that step of surrender um, with who Jesus is and said, you know what? I'm giving it to him. And they followed through with baptism. Here's my closing thought. If you think about it, the cross of Christ is an invitation of grace. And Jesus Christ is calling every single one of us and the spirit is calling us. He's calling us to, for forgiveness. He's calling us for surrender. He's calling us for confession. He's calling us to have life, to bring restoration and redemption. This amazing grace is an invitation for you and me. So on the table, the question that we have to ask is, are you willing to accept the invitation? Jesus is not gonna force it on you. And as he works and convicts, are you going to accept the invitation to new life? And here's how I wanna close this morning. This is a little bit different. Usually I just pray and the band leads. But there's gonna be two kind of different invitations this morning. One, for someone that might not have a relationship with Jesus. You believe in Jesus, you're here, you think church is a good thing, but you've never had a moment where you have surrendered your life. You might even know some Bible verses, you know the churchy things to say, but there's never been a point of surrender. I wanna give you an opportunity. I would be negligent to preach this passage and to say, hi, y'all have a great day, go have some lunch without giving you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. And so I'm gonna lead you through that and I'll pray. And then we get to respond through communion this morning. Incredible time. In communion, we, we have an open policy as a church, which means you don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion, but you do have to be a believer. Because as a believer, you understand the importance of the body of Jesus being broken and the blood being shed. So the band, the band will lead us. I'll pray through that. But right now, I just want to ask you to do this. If you would, just in the stillness of this moment, would you just close your eyes and bow your head. And I know there's probably a lot of distractions, a lot of different things. I just want it to be you and Jesus this morning. And as God has been working and, and the Spirit convicting, praise God, we had two people already this morning give their life to Jesus. But I want to invite you to do the same. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, here's what I want you to do. Eyes closed, head bowed. Just in your heart, you don't have to say this out loud. There's something magical about this. God knows exactly where you are right now. But if that's you and you wanna give your life to Jesus, just repeat this in your heart. Say this, say, God, I need you. I realize I'm no one without you. And I realize and acknowledge my sin.
My sin has separated me from you. Will you forgive me for my sins through the blood of Jesus? Will you come into my life and save me and to help me live for you? Now, if that's you this morning, your eyes still closed, everybody heads bowed. If that's you, would you be bold enough? Like I said, we had two people already this morning, praise God. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? We're not gonna do anything to embarrass you. And say, man, I, I, I just prayed that. I just gave my life to Jesus. Thank you. Anyone else? Man, this is an incredible moment. Don't shy away from it. Don't walk out of here without knowing for certain. If you just raise your hand. All right, let me pray for us and then I'll lead us through communion. Father, I'm so thankful for the, the one person that gave their life to, G, to you this morning. In Jesus' name. And we celebrate a life being changed. And I pray for great boldness. That person would live for you in every way possible. Give them the strength that your power gives to live for you. God, we celebrate that today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, here's our second, second thing. We're going to partake in communion. I'm going to pray for us. But as a believer, man, this is an incredible time for us to remember, as Jesus said that night in the upper room, he said, the bread is my body that was broken for you. It was personal. He said, this juice is my blood that was shed for you. It was personal. So as we partake, let us do so in remembrance of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. So you could have life. You could be forgiven and have that invitation of grace that is so awesome. So I'm gonna pray for us. We'll stand and as you feel led, come down, grab uh, a cup of juice and a um, cracker and head back to your seat. You can pray and the band will lead us. Let's pray together. Father, we in this moment recognize the body of your son Jesus being broken for us. We put him on the cross.